welcome to episode 40 of Jackman Radio. It's been uh, it's been a few months. Yeah. It's been like three months it's or so. Summertime. Some shit has gone down in the last few months. So we've been a little preoccupied, but very happy to be back and very happy that the uh, election's over. Yeah, it's hard to believe after a year and a half of pure madness and insanity and um, us the uh, election process turning into a reality TV show, it, it ended the proper way in him winning, Mike. It kind of did. It kind of dovetailed nicely into into a uh, a victory <laughs> that you all along, I think, quite frankly, predicted and saw coming. Yeah, I mean, obviously for a while, man, I was like, they 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 picked Hillary a long time ago. You know, they were going to have Obama for eight years, and then the powers that be said, we'll give we'll give our uh, champion Hillary eight years. But uh, I wow, thought, I thought so too, man. I even thought till election day, Big it was going to be Hillary. I did too up until election day. You know, I was, and honestly, I mean. Neither of them, one of them, were great choices. You know, the first ones that we had or that I had, but I would rather have Trump than Hillary. Yeah, for, I, for four years. I had to cop to a friend today that I was very excited that we don't have to deal with, listen to, or look at Hillary Clinton for at least the next four years. Yeah, that, I, he closed the book on the Clintons. I mean, he, he did. We're closing the book on the Clintons. We are. We he, really are. He shut the bushes down during the primary. And he, and he shut the Clintons down. So, yeah. if anything, thank you, Trump, for doing that. Yeah, you no, know? he definitely uh, peed in the pool of two American political dynasties. Well, he pissed in Bush's pool. He shit in the Clinton pool. Yeah, he did, yeah. I had, On I the ate, deep end, too. I ate Mexican at Chipotle and had diarrhea in the Hillary Foundation's pool. It was a disaster. It went from chlorine to brown quickly. <laughs> but I did a great job. And you do. You probably got four years of gigs ahead of you. Well, not probably. It's already happening. At least I mean, until he gets impeached or, or resigns. Yeah, or, something crazy happens. Um yeah, I got uh, already got some gigs lined up. Uh, house party in Wellesley, Mass, Saturday night, and then you think they're liberal? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, if if, <laughs> it's a, if I had to take a guess, I would say that's probably a Bernie a Bernie neighborhood or a Hillary neighborhood, but a Triglet Hillary neighborhood. Yeah, a neighborhood full of Triglets. But um, man, how about the WikiLeaks emails? The Podesta emails, dude. It just it factored into the whole deal. I, lo- I love WikiLeaks. Yeah, he's like, we, I love WikiLeaks. We saw Trump in Manchester, New Hampshire, the night before the election. And it kind of came full circle, because that's where Eric had his first encounter with Trump back in February, where he called you to the front and kind of anointed you and, and actually said that he hoped you make a lot of money. Right. Since that time, is it safe to say you've made thousands of dollars dressing up as Donald Trump? Thousands of U.S. dollars have been generated uh, with me doing the Trump gigs. So. so he's not even president yet. He's already a job creator. I'm a job creator. I, did. I changed Eric Jackman's life, and I changed it for the better, and I changed it bigly. So we were in Manchester, New Hampshire at the Verizon. It's no longer called the Verizon. I don't know what it's called. It's the Southern New Hampshire University Arena. It's always going to be the Verizon in my mind. Me too. And there was about 12,000 people there screaming, frothing, uh, bloodthirsty, make America great, uh, hat brandishing sycophants. I think, yeah. And and I looked at it. I saw End of Times. Yep. I saw the Apocalypse. Okay. I saw End of Days. Yep. I saw... Did you see a new Reich? I saw a new Reich. Okay. And... um, I know that's when it really. I, you said, "Holy shit, he might win." I was like, "He could win this whole thing." Yeah, Monday night, dude, twelve thousand people. And I know we were talking afterwards. Mike Pence was maybe one of the scariest parts of that. The fire and brimstone yeah. of Mike Pence. I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican. In that order. In that order. Yeah. The crowd just went nuts. The red meat that was being served up, dude, was just nothing short of gladiator. Yeah. It was like a wrestling. It I had was, been, I had like been to a world wrestling match at that arena, at that very okay. arena four years ago, okay. and there was more excitement for the Trump rally than there was for the wrestling match. Oh my god, it's so good! But uh, wow, there's going to be a lot to dissect um, in the coming 
weeks with who Trump's going to put around him. I mean, yeah, what do you make of some of the choices? I mean, I mean, he's for, just talking about draining the swamp. It looks like he's throwing yeah, some alligators we're, we're, in the swamp. Yeah, we're going to drain the swamp and refill it with even worse swamp water with swamp creatures in it and swamp things. Swamp thing reboot. It's going to be disgusting. I mean, first of all, Rudy Giuliani being kicked around as possibly Secretary of State. I mean, Trump, what the fuck, dude? Like, I know, you know, you don't have your shit together in some areas, but dude, what are you doing? Giuliani? Guy's a, guy's a fucking clown. You know, when I see him, I'm just like, go away, man. He's, you know, he's he's America's mayor. Right. Yeah. When he, he fucking the 9-11, he just ran around and, and looked befuddled. He didn't do shit. He didn't do jack shit. Well, I cut taxes and I prosecuted terror. Believe me, stop and frisk was incredible under Giuliani. We're going to bring it back. And it's going to be very specific to people of color who were gay, who were Arab, who had towels on their head and to women. Everyone else is fine. Yeah, we were saying today, we're going to be okay the next yeah. four years. But there are a lot of people who are genuinely frightened. There are. People and were crying. I mean, I saw people crying. There were people crying. You know, and all the people who are threatening to leave the country, give me a break. Yeah, okay? what a load of bullocks that that's, is. That's a load of horse shit, okay? You're not moving to Canada. No one's moving. Okay? We're going to be fine. Are you going to go live in Newfoundland on a fucking iceberg? <laughs> like I said, what if you lived in Aleppo? You know, I mean, Gary Johnson would know what Aleppo is or where yeah. it is. But, oh, Gary. You know, that's sad what happened to Gary. You know, he had a little steam there for a while, man, and I was really hoping he was going to make the debates, and it didn't happen. No. But uh, back to people uh, that Trump's putting around him. So you got friggin' Mike Pence. I mean, that, that guy's a Christian retard. I mean, he's got all the evangelical retards fired up. Uh, fire and brimstone, you know, we're going to get gay. Gays are going to, we're going to get rid of their rights, uh, you know, abortion rights. You know, we're going to put back together uh, fetus parts. And they're going to bury the fetal tissue. Well, no, they're going to they're gonna get all the fetus parts and round them up and create one big human. <laughs> Like a Frankenstein. Yeah, like a big Frankenstein. Like, like a fetal Frankenstein. Yeah. Okay. So you got you got Pence, and Pence is connected to some some nasty people in the evangelical movement. Yeah, I was, Eric Prince, the I was founder reading of Black Water. Intercept about that today. Yeah, yeah. yeah just just holier than thou people who uh, just just are so obsessed with what people do in their private lives and so hung up on social issues. It's just so archaic, and it's actually pretty embarrassing. It's twisted. But these people are giving, they're getting a big platform. They're getting the vice presidency. I mean, there's some, I was reading there's some neocons that might be getting the second shelf life that we're in. Right. And that too. Bush's cabinet. We're going to definitely talk about that with our interview tonight with Robbie. Um, But right. So then uh, Bolton, John Bolton's name getting thrown around, the former uh, ambassador to the UN under Bush, who who went in during recess. He wasn't confirmed. They they skated him in. They they pushed him in. Yeah. They forced him in. So he's already, when when he was up for confirmation under W. Bush, uh, he didn't go in legitimately. Was he a PNAC guy? Project for New American Century? Project for New American Century, architect for the Iraq War, uh, huge proponent of preemptive war in the Middle East, overthrowing um, quote unquote dictators in the Middle East. I guess it depends who you are. You know, someone's dictator could be another person's freedom fighter. Right. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Pence, too, Mike Huckabee's being considered for a cabinet position. Yeah. Well, Huckabee's daughter was one of uh, Trump's press people or advisors on his campaign. Yeah. I I remember hearing about that early on. So, um, so right. So you got some of these, these neocon people, some of these PDAC and then Bannon from Breitbart. Yeah, Steve Bannon. Not a lot of good things being said about him. I mean, the KKK likes him. Yeah, I mean, David Duke endorsed, and David's a very sharp guy. For I don't know a lot about David Duke. I don't really know who he is, but I got his endorsement, and we're partnering up with Walmart and Martha Stewart to make the David Duke bed sheets, thousand count satin sheets that are going to be required uniform for the White House staff in the kitchen, and it's going to be tremendous. 
But uh, yeah, man, he's Trump's not off to a good start, in my opinion, man. You know, I'll I be think honest. Christie's kind of been sacked, kind of been well, sidelined. Christie like, got pushed off the bridge, no pun intended, man, because mm-hmm. that that thing, uh, two of his aides were prosecuted. I mean, they did they did that shit. They, they wanted knew the bridge it, to be yeah. closed down. Didn't you make a comment to Christie when you met him in Keene about when I, well, I met him up in Spofford? I said, Governor, great to have you in our state. Uh, don't worry, we don't have a lot of bridges up here. And he looked at me like I was a cheeseburger <laughs> sub, and he wanted to take a bite of me. He wanted to rip your yeah, face he off. He wanted to rip my face off. But, uh, yeah, Christie hitched himself to Trump early after he lost it badly here in New Hampshire, and uh, it's not going to pay off for him. And I don't, New, I don't New know. Gingrich is being floated. Right, and then New Gingrich. I mean, that guy's fucking gross. You know? <laughs> <laughs> talk, about a, yeah. talk about a flashback to the 90s. Oh, my know, God. The contract on America. Dude, it really is, man. You're seeing a lot of these people resurfacing who were uh, the antithesis to the Clintons in the 90s who now have new life with Trump. I mean, if, if Trump could, could, you know, look at someone maybe like Ron Paul or Rand Paul for a position or uh, maybe a Republican who shows restraint in the foreign policy area. Yeah. Maybe well, someone with some fucking like, intelligence. I mean, you know? He, 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 suppo- he said he was against the Iraq war and he was against Clinton because Clinton was going to start all these wars and because right. of her action as Secretary of State with Syria and right. other p- parts of the world. Like, it's not really a good sign of things to come. No, it's not a good he's sign. He's surrounding himself with all these, uh, you know... All these Republicans from, uh, from yeah, the past. Well, just they're they're they're, they're war mongering blowhards, you know. I mean, Iran, they're, they're so bloodthirsty for a confrontation with Iran. It's like kind of unbelievable, man, you know. And, and then uh, the stuff with torture too. Yeah, uh, we're, we're going to do worse than waterboarding. They're going to wish they they're going to they're going to think they're at water country when it was waterboarding under Bush. <laughs> when I get in there, believe me. But um, <laughs> and then uh, what was I going to say? So. And then, uh, well, I had a little. I had some hope about Trump and Putin too, because I mean, then you you had like the neoliberals and, and Democrats and the Clinton crowd, you know, basically wanting all-out war with Russia, right? And, and sanctioning Putin and, and battling him, um, you know, toe for toe. But um, didn't Trump do a phone call with Putin? Uh, yeah, I heard they I heard did a that. phone call, and you know, we'll see see some posturing of détente, you know, which which is nice. North Korea is happy about it. Yeah. We can talk to North Korea and Russia. Absolutely. We he's don't just, have to have a war. He's just a little yellow guy. I could go talk to him. I'll build a hotel in Pyongyang. It would be the greatest building they've ever seen. But, um, <laughs> you know. Last night you had a great, great Trump trend. New Hampshire. Eric was oh, featured yeah. on WMUR News 9, Channel 9, New Hampshire Chronicle, New Hampshire which Chronicle. is New Hampshire's largest TV show, from what I understand. Yeah, Fritz Weatherby. I'm Fritz Weatherby, standing in front of a church in Langdon. I'll tell you more about it tonight at 7 on Chronicle. Usually yeah. they talk about, like... um. Arts and crafts and stuff and yeah, you know knitting and town halls yeah and, and, exciting uh, stuff like that stone but, walls and Concord yeah, stone walls revolutionary that's, trails yeah that's a very New England New Hampshire kind of uh, thing but yeah we did uh, Sean McDonald interviewed myself and our friend Suzanne Marlowe who is who looks like Hillary Clinton she's not uh, so much an impersonator as she's a lookalike yeah and uh, it was great. People, uh, the response, I've gotten tons of calls. Uh, I've got people calling like you wouldn't believe. I'm getting phone calls and emails and texts and Facebook messages. And uh, people really enjoyed it, you know. So uh, I was glad Sean included my challenge to Jimmy Fallon to have me on The Tonight Show to battle out our Trump impression. So hopefully someone sees that from the late night. I'm just going to keep working at it. One step at a time. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, tonight's interview, we have... Uh, Robbie Martin calling in. Uh, he's an interesting fellow. He's a documentary filmmaker, a writer, a producer, and he does podcasting of his own. He's the founder of Media Roots, and his website is MediaRoots.org. And Media Roots describes itself as citizen journalism project that reports from outside of party lines 
while providing a forum for conscious citizens, artists, and activists to unite. And he's, um, he's done a string of documentaries, and I watched one of them called American Anthrax, and we're going to focus on that tonight. Um, he also did a more recent one called The Very Heavy Agenda, uh, which is like a three-part documentary film series that focuses on the neoconservative <clears throat> movement of the 70s to the 90s and how, yeah, that's, how, how a lot of them united behind Hillary Clinton. Well, yeah, and, and they, were, they were the architects of, in essence, of the Iraq War, the, the doctrine of preemptive strike. Uh, you know, global dominance, America asserting itself as the uh, singular uh, world power. And Robbie has a funny story about meeting uh, 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 Robert Kagan a few yeah, months back. and got a Facebook profile got a picture, picture with him, so I want to ask him about that. Oh, so great. we're going to talk to Robbie Martin in just a little bit about uh, um, the anthrax attacks, which uh, the 15th anniversary uh, just came and went a couple weeks ago. And the uh, kind of, you know, background information on that and the fact that no one's actually ever been charged with the attacks and uh, some of the uh, discrepancies yeah, in that whole case. Kind of the tie into this, I mean, maybe one of the reasons we got on Robbie's radar or vice versa was you and I, Mike, had eight years apart meetings with Tom Daschle. Yeah. Senator Tom Daschle, who was the Senate Majority Leader from, uh, is it South or North Dakota? I can never fucking remember. Uh, U.S. Senator, I, th- I, I want to say South I want to say Dakota? South Dakota. Yeah, so one of the Dakotas. He got he was sent anthrax. He was into his Senate office. He was, and we actually Eric. I met him in two thousand seven, a day after my twenty first birthday. And Eric met him earlier this year. July. So we'll yeah. talk to uh, Robbie Martin all about that. So, uh, coming up in just a little bit, we'll be talking with Robbie Martin. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to Jackman Radio. I'm very excited tonight to uh, welcome Robbie Martin. Uh, as I said before, Robbie is the founder of Media Roots. He's a writer, film producer, podcaster extraordinaire, um, longtime researcher of uh, many different things, including the uh, anthrax attacks, which we're going to focus on tonight. Uh, Robbie, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Um, I just wanted to cr- correct one thing, and it's my fault, that uh, my sister, Abby, actually was a founder of Media Roots. I just wrote, uh, write for it and contribute to it. Oh, okay. Well, my apologies. So Ab- Abby Martin, the founder of Media Roots, we're obviously big fans of Abby, uh, breaking the set and what she's doing with Empire Files and um, uh, all, all your work as well. So thanks for correcting us on that. And, uh, yeah, so Robbie is the creator of the documentary series, A Very Heavy Agenda, um, which kind of uh, goes into the history of the neoconservative movement in America, as well as the documentary American Anthrax, which I just watched for the first time last week and uh, totally blew my mind. I haven't been able to see A uh, Very Heavy Agenda yet, but it's, it's, it's on my agenda to watch. But, uh, uh, Eric, have you seen either of those? Or? I've watched some clips, and I uh, just got to give you some props for that, Robbie, man. So the, re- the research you did, I can't even imagine how many hours and days you spent wading through all that shit and, and doing that research. I mean, I guess my question for you is what motivated you to delve into those, you know, the neocon movement and then the background of the story leading up to the Bush administration? Um, well, the, the event that kicked it all off was when Abby was still working for Russia Today on her show, Breaking the Set. And when she was working there... Um, is when sort of the whole Ukraine situation came to a head. The Euromaidan protests had escalated to the point where it seemed like, you know, the Ukrainian government was going to be overthrown. And 
she found herself in a difficult position of not liking some of the other RT content that was coming out, sort of overly sugarcoating Russia's role in that. But she was also very upset at the U.S. media's coverage of it. And she kind of, her goal was to sort of, you know, say that she disliked both the Russian and the U.S. media coverage of what was happening because, you know, to both of us, it was sort of like, you know, Russia today up until that point didn't really have a reason to promote a Russian line on things necessarily because it was mostly just there to criticize the United States. Um, And she she felt, as I felt, that there was a problem with Russia sugarcoating, you know, using what used to be a very effective media outlet like RT to start actually peddling some of the, you know, overly sugarcoating narratives about Russia's role in Ukraine. And at the same time that that happened, we weren't really that familiar with the situation and the political landscape there, and also weren't really that familiar with the U.S.'s role in meddling there and helping install the Ukrainian government. We knew a little bit about it, um, but it was like, like a crash course education for us where after Abby made this statement, it was basically just an ending monologue on one of her episodes, um, and for some reason the U.S. media thought that they could use her closing monologue as an example of, like, an anti-Russian protest of some kind, when, in reality, her monologue at the end of her show was very critical of the U.S. as well. It was basically just her saying that she didn't like the what the media on both sides was doing. And the media propelled, the U.S. media propelled her to this sort of weird status where they were trying to paint her as some kind of anti-Russian hero, you know, almost like Pussy Riot or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And very, very quickly, um, the mainstream media people in it realized, you know, the mistake that they had made that what Abby's politics actually were and how aggressively critical she was towards United States foreign policy. So as soon as they realized this, um, basically a, a neocon attack force came out of the, the shadows of D.C. and started to try to ruin Abby's um, reputation uh, by saying, you know, that she was a crazy truther, um, that she, you know, she had all these crazy views. They were trying to basically marginalize her and paint her as some kind of kooky, radical, you know, uh, person. And then that was only in really a 24-hour period where they sort of elevated her to the status and then destroyed her. And then the next day, um, one of her colleagues at RT, who had never voiced any criticisms of the network before, who was pretty much apolitical, um, resigned live on air and almost like mimicking what Abby did, except she actually, you know, said, I'm no longer going to be part of this network that whitewashes the actions of Putin. Mm-hmm. She basically said something that sounded, you know, straight out of like a, you know, like a, like a, like an old school Cold War manual or something like that. So, so after this incident happened, Abby and I were extremely shocked, you know, wondering why did Liz Wall do this? And immediately the media coverage, you know, had already forgotten about Abby. And all of a sudden Liz Wall was this big anti-Russian hero who was getting interviewed on CNN and Fox News um, all about her resignation. Um, and then from there, we, we both sort of figured out at the same time that there was this um, reporter at the Daily Beast named Jamie Kerchick who had been egging her on to resign for months before this all happened, because he wanted her to help him write a tell-all 
expose, you know, like exposing all the supposed corruption and uh, happening at RT. And we click, quickly realized that he was actually a fellow at this think tank in D.C. called the Foreign Policy Initiative, which turned out to be the rebranded name of the, the project for the New American Century. Oh, wow. So once I found that out, um, I remembered back to my times of being, you know, um, involved in 9-11 Truth and sort of the neoconservative critique that was coming out during the Bush era, and I was just astonished that not only was the project for the New American Century still operating, but that they were trying to basically start a, a, a war with Russia today, yeah. kind of on their own terms. <clears throat> and uh, I believe that they were doing that because they felt that the Obama administration was playing too passive of, of a role with Russian media and R Russian media operating out of uh, Washington, D.C. So the neocons in D.C. took it upon themselves to try to start some kind of war with this network itself. So this was like some, some kind of Team B type stuff going on, where you had these um, neocon thugs really kind of pushing for a drumbeat of Russia versus U.S. again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, and, and the thing that I found out, you know, fairly quickly after figuring all this out was that some of these, you know, famous neocons who helped construct the Iraq war plans and who had been pushing for it since the early 1990s were actually looking to jump into a new Cold War situation with post-Soviet Russia pretty soon after the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, I started finding clips from Robert Kagan, the co-founder of the Project of the New American Century, talking about, uh, you know, how... Russia might seem stable right now and friendly to us, but eventually, you know, they're going to turn evil again, kind of like the evil empire, and we're going to need to address this. And uh, this was back in, like, 1996. Um, and then I started making connections to all these other, you know, I would call them more neoliberals or liberal interventionists, like Strobe Talbot, um, who served in the Clinton administration, who's kind of in the mold of Duke Jackson, who's considered a, a Cold War Democrat, who really carried the tort of sort of this jingoistic anti-Russian sentiment in D.C. past the point of the Soviet Union. Strobe Talbot was a sponsor of uh, expansion in the 90s in about 10 more countries and they could have said, you know, during the Soviet Union. And, you know, and then I started to find out things like Robert Kagan's married to Victoria Newland, who was the current, you know, Assistant Secretary of State for Eurasian Affairs. Hmm. And then uh, Robert Kagan's mentor was Strobe Talbot, um, this this Cold War Democrat who also turned out to be Bill Clinton's college roommate. So <laughs> started making, you know, started realizing how connected this little of people were. Um, and then over time, it uh, became obvious that these that this you know neoconservative clique. Uh, had actually decided to go towards Hillary Clinton as far back as like three or four years ago. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And, and and I wanted to ask you too, Robbie. I'm glad you brought up Robert Kagan. Uh, I had a good laugh at the the photograph of you wearing those aviator shades uh, next to Robert Kagan. Can you give us a little a little backstory? It's kind of, it's almost kind of cutesy. It's kind of like when um, we met Jeb Bush we met Jeb here. Bush and, and asked him about some stuff. What what what's the backstory on that? Oh, service might be bad. Can you hear me, Robbie? Hello? Oh, yeah, yeah you there? 
So, uh, yeah, Robert Kagan through a fundraiser. Okay, try that now. Yep. So you were at a you were at a fundraiser that Robert Kagan hosted. Uh, and some other people. So you know, weird trial book Hillary Clinton was putting out in June, trying to see, you know what the strategy showing that she heard or favored conservatives than Trump and. Obviously, the strategy, her, but uh, yeah, I met. I met her. Um, was I had I had to donate Clinton to to get it and put it to basically report on it and and try to ask Robert Kagan questions um, and a, you know candid and try to get some candid answers from him, posing as a donor. And it, well, what immediately struck me was. Um, he had this attitude when I started basically asking him about Ukraine and Hillary, you know, what will Hillary's approach be in Ukraine? Um, he, he said that Hillary cares a lot more about Ukraine than Obama does, and that it's like a very important concern to her. Mm-hmm. So since he brought Obama up, I was just, I just had to ask him, you know, why do you think Obama hasn't sent offensive weaponry to Ukraine, hasn't supplied the Ukrainian army with um, you know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons. I mean, some estimates say about around $3 billion of weapons to them to help fight the Russian separatists. And his explanation was that uh, Obama thinks that Putin is hopeless, that he can't um, make him budge in any way, and that Putin also finds the Crimea and Ukrainian area more of an important strategic region for him than it is for the United States in general, which, you know, seems like a pretty reasonable approach, you know, for Obama to take. And then what I found most fascinating is Robert Kagan then said that uh, the re- and he, he said in a private discussion he had with Obama, Obama said he didn't want to start nuclear war with Russia. And, you know, again, that sounds like a pretty reasonable uh, position to me, but R- Robert Kagan actually was mocking him as he was saying this. Right. and mocking the idea that Obama was hesitant um, to tell Russia what to do in Ukraine based on this fear of escalating us into a nuclear confrontation. So that that was what I took away from that experience, is that one of Hillary Clinton's you know, foreign policy advisors, even though he wasn't officially, yeah. um, but someone who was probably giving her advice, thought that Obama was extremely weak and laughable um, for being o- overtly afraid of escalating things to a nuclear confrontation, so lunatic. I, I, th- I found that really terrifying. Yeah, yeah, that is terrifying. Yeah, lunatic. <laughs> I mean, o- Obama did he uh, he did more drone bombings than the Bush administration ever did, and he was he treated whistleblowers a lot worse than Bush did. So that's uh, that's scary. So I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm very glad that Hillary Clinton's not in there, but. Uh, we were just talking about this earlier. Trump getting in there, and now already, you know, within the first. Oh, you're breaking up again. I can't. I can't hear you. Oh, can you hear me now? Uh, did we lose him? Yeah, call was lost. Want to try him on Ben's phone, maybe? Maybe mine. No, we can hear you much better, and you can hear us. Sorry about that. So, um, no yeah. Worries. So what? Yeah, what we were saying uh, basically was Trump. Now, I mean, Hillary was obviously going to have some of these neocons in her administration, or at least be advising her. And now we see Trump with the likes of, uh, you know, Bolton 
and um, you know Giuliani and, and all these other people. And what Gingrich. You, and Gingrich. Yeah. What are, you, what are your thoughts now on that and what the direction Trump's moving in? Oh, I think um, I I feel personally responsible to some degree for dropping the ball on um, not paying more attention to who his foreign policy advisors were and instead looking too much at the neocons who were going towards Hillary because they they made a very public display of it. Um, Some of the projects in the New American Century neocons like Elliot Cohen, um, Robert Kagan, of course, um, even Paul Wolfowitz, I think Dick Cheney, actually were part of the Never Trump movement. Um, And most of them... I think Cheney endorsed Trump, actually. Oh, Dick Cheney endorsed Trump. Cheney came out in favor of Trump. Cheney yeah. did. Okay. Cheney oh, okay. Did. Yeah, but I think you're right okay. about Wolfowitz, though, Robbie. That he was in he was in Hillary's corner. Yeah. So you know, and those are really big names in the neoconservative movement. So I think one, it was safe for most people to make the assumption that this was a huge neocon defection away from, you know, whatever wing of the GOP supported Trump. But what I'm finding out. Uh, what I've found out in the last two weeks um, is that uh, because of the you know enormous distraction of, of 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 Hillary Clinton joining forces with the neocons, and I, I don't mean to call it a distraction. I mean I I think that's obviously an important you know flank of her campaign and probably uh, probably actually contributed to her losing. Um, but I think that it distracted me away from looking at what PNAC-era neocons and actual signatories of, of PNAC papers um, were, were still or were actually supporting Donald Trump, and they were not supporting Hillary Clinton. Um, and that included figures like Michael Ledeen, uh, Frank Gaffney, oh, yeah. um, Frank John Gaffney. Bolton, mm-hmm. um, James Woolsey. Bolton specifically is actually someone who got involved in the super PAC business um, the past couple of years, and I remembered, you know, I remembered this event, but not really that well. I didn't think much of it, but I remembered reading a couple of years ago that Bolton was running a super PAC against Rand Paul, just to specifically make Rand Paul look like a like a um, isolationist, while running imagery of you know Ira- um, Iranians, scary Iranians with waving guns around, with mixed with nuclear bomb footage. Yep. So Bolton was, you know, very intent on marginalizing Rand Paul. And immediately after Rand Paul got out of the race, um, he started to funnel millions of dollars into a super PAC for Trump. Hmm. And I think that, you know, the bill, the bill's coming due now where it's like, that's why you see John Bolton circling so closely to Trump. And he's, you know, been speculated as being slated for secretary of state. Sometimes I see him saying, you know, the media speculating that he might be getting defense secretary position. So it's not really clear yet where he's going to be in the Trump administration. But I think just based on him running this super PAC, um, it's extremely frightening that he seems very likely to have a, a you know, a pretty high up position in the Trump administration. Yes. Um, so if Bolton does get in there, whether it's defense um, or state, I mean, what do you, what do you see being really the first um Goal? Do you see ramping up aggressions with Iran? Do you see going into other Middle Eastern countries? I mean, what would, what do you think Bolton's primary um, goals would be? You know, judging on the groups that he's connected with that would seek to make money and to empower themselves. Well, the scary thing is, I think 
you know, there's a there's a sort of a bait and switch happening, where upon studying some of these Trump neocons, um, it's there's an odd thread that connects them together. So, for example, um, Frank Gaffney, Bolton, James Woolsey, they say that overthrowing Assad should not be a priority. Although, of course, they want to aggressively destroy ISIS. But it's not because of pacifism or because they're not as hawkish as some of the other neocons. They actually have the view that to really cut off the head off Assad, you need to take out Iran because they're the ones you know, also supporting Assad. So Wolsey and Bolton specifically, um, but more we're talking about Bolton, um, I think the dangerous prospect of this is because so many GOP people and so many Republicans are already tepid on the idea of funding Syrian rebels and even overthrowing Assad, um, I believe that John Bolton could play into that sentiment, but then really throw in sort of a new, you know, <laughs> new war drums about Iran and sort of make the case to them that that's who we really need to be going after. They're already trying to drive a wedge by saying that the Iran deal is going to be completely thrown out and reversed. Um, and then once that's gone, which I think it will be under a Trump administration, uh, we're going to start seeing the war drums, um, you know, being beaten for a war in Iran. And, you know, obviously that's a very dangerous and scary prospect. But I think that there was a faction of neoconservatism that always were hoping for that possibility Whereas some of the other neocons like Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol, they sort of abandoned, at least rhetorically, the idea of invading Iran during the Obama administration. They wouldn't bring it up. But I'm sure in private, you know, many of those neocons that defected towards Hillary probably do believe that that needs to be done as well. They just don't talk about it because they're more savvy. Oh, definitely. I mean, t towards the end of uh, George W. Bush's second term, uh, one of the things I think a lot of people who were against the Iraq war and who were keeping an eye on the foreign policy of the Bush administration were worried about was war with Iran. Um, you had, uh, I mean, you had uh, uh, officials in that administration trying to really kind of make the case and, and even in some examples, uh, stuffing intelligence and, and making things up and even planting things. And uh, um so it's almost like the, the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> you know, they're getting... A... No, it, it is. I mean, and even in the movie um, Syriana, uh, there was a fictional group in that movie that were, you know, defense contractor-funded ex-politicians. I think they called themselves the Council for the Liberation of Iran. Um, and I'm not absolutely sure if the person who wrote the book Syriana based it off of John Bolton. Is it Robert but from what I read of John Bolton, he actually was running a similar... Um, group around around that same time, um, trying to advocate for, you know, basically a non-nuclear Iran. But the real underlying message to his this little group he set up was invading Iran and overthrowing their government. Right. Um, so he's he's been a staunch uh, advocate for that for a very long time, and I believe that the Bush administration um, found him too uncontrollable and a little too brash in his rhetoric, and that's why he was demoted to U.N. ambassador right. about halfway through the Bush administration. Another name that I saw, too, Robbie, was Stephen Hadley. That name sent up some serious red flags, too. I read that Trump's considering Stephen Hadley for some positions. I think he was part of the Iraq study group, and he was a liaison between the White House and the Pentagon uh, during Bush's administration. Um, yeah, to... 
to be honest, I'm not too familiar with with Hadley. I know I know he was involved in, you know, helping propel the Iraq War propaganda, um, but I'm not too familiar with with him. And I haven't heard that, but I'm sure that's true, um, just based on what else I've been seeing yes. about about Trump's people. So shift, shifting from who Trump's uh, surrounding himself with back to the neocons of, you know, 15 years ago during uh, George W. Bush's administration, we wanted to kind of touch on the anthrax attacks because it's almost like the forgotten event that that the 15th anniversary kind of just came and went a couple weeks ago in October. And um, what is it, about 15 or 16 people actually lost their lives a couple weeks after 9-11 uh, through these anthrax attacks? Well, in actuality, only five people died, but there were dozens of people who were infected and who okay. could have died if they didn't seek uh, treatment. Right, they had a skin um, infection that was, was treatable. Yeah, I mean, some of the cases of inhalation anthrax were treatable as well, but they had to, they were lucky to get treatment right away um, for those incidents. I don't know how many were skin versus inhalation, but... Um, right, so okay, so it's, yes. it's a week, within two weeks of 9-11, and... These letters, are, which are postmarked from, New, from like a, a fictitious school in New Jersey, are sent mm -hmm. out. And they're sent to um, like ABC News, CBS, NBC, uh, New York Post, National Enquirer, uh, a journalist who was working on a story about the Bush daughters. Um, and it really just, it's like the second wave after 9-11 that kind of crippled the nation. So that paralysis and the fear... Um, you know, take us back to that time and kind of what everyone was thinking and, and, and where maybe these, these letters were from. Okay. Well, I think uh, um, it, it's important to remember that after 9-11, um, I mean, it's actually hard. Or I don't think most people even do remember it. That after 9-11, there was this Bush administration narrative that 9-11 was just one of a series of future attacks. Mm -hmm. that they're going to strike us again. Mm-hmm. And uh, on October 5th, uh, Robert Stevens, the Florida Sun uh, reporter, died. Or, I'm sorry, he went to the hospital with um, anthrax. I believe, actually, I think he did die on October 5th. So very quickly after that, um, the media started speculating, um, as you know, would be typical for them, that this was some kind of second terrorist attack. Um, the Bush administration um, started speculating that as well. Um, they never said that al-Qaeda sent out the anthrax. They never said Saddam Hussein sent out the anthrax. But the Bush administration alluded to these connections. Um, the Bush administration uh, wasn't even really talking about Iraq publicly around the time the attacks happened. But what they did do is have loyal neoconservatives from PNAC that didn't serve in their administration, like Robert Kagan, like Gary Schmidt, like William Crystal and other loyal uh, reporters like Judith Miller for the New York Times put out a lot of innuendo in the mainstream press, essentially saying that this had all the hallmarks and fingerprints of the uh, Iraq's biological weapons program. Right, yeah. Now, now I think that's, that's important to bring up because I think in general, the idea that Bush lied about WMDs, that meme that you hear a lot, is... Not that it's inaccurate, but that I think it does a disservice to the actual nuances and complexities of how the Bush administration was able to create this elusive, imaginary three-way connection between 9-11, Iraq, and al-Qaeda. 
Um, and, they, you know, they tried to throw out other things like saying Muhammad Atta met with an Iraqi intelligence official and other kinds of phony, you know, uh, stories like that. Right, over but, in Germany or something, or Prague. Yeah. Yeah, but John, I think John that, McCain was pushing that for a while, and, and they were also, you know, uh, pushing the idea that maybe um, – you know, Saddam was gonna was uh, gonna shoot down a UN airplane, but in reality, Bush met with Tony Blair to talk about painting a plane UN colors to yeah. goad Saddam into shooting it down. Yeah, and we and we know now, based on just insiders and leaks, that the Bush administration, on the very first day of his presidency, was talking about Iraq. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that you know they were looking looking for an excuse to invade Iraq. But if you think back to all the things that they tried to use, like that meeting, um, like uh, the nuclear, you know, the whole idea of Saddam had a nuclear weapons program and aluminum tubes and uranium in Niger. Those things all fell apart before we actually got to the UN um, Colin Powell speech, where he, where you know, he made his final plea for the Bush administration to get into Iraq. Those, all those narratives fell apart. But the one narrative that I think really impacted us was that there was an anthrax attack in the United States. Their seeds had been planted that Iraq was the likely culprit. And I don't think most of the American public remembers or realizes that that was the key ingredient, um, the secret ingredient, for the Bush administration to really be able to make that triangulation effort and pivot from uh, Afghanistan to Iraq so fluidly and easily. Um, Because in retrospect, it seems, you know, like Bush obviously lied us into war, um, you know, he he tricked all the Democrats into voting for the war somehow. I mean, I find that laughable. <laughs> yeah, but me too. I I believe the real reason is with the anthrax attacks because of the fear and hysteria it generated to make Americans believe that terrorism would continue in the United States and that 9/11 was not a solo singular event; that it was a continuing attack on our population, which is something they used very well. Um, to sort of trick the public, you know, consciousness around the time, but they never really talked about it much later, because it turned out that it came from uh, a bioweapons lab in the United States, and the FBI knew that very quickly, as early as 2002. Um, but you had interesting figures like uh, Mike Pence, um, who, as if people are listening don't know, is Trump's VP pick. Um, Mike Pence actually carried this myth and this narrative throughout. Uh, 2002, to the point where he was writing letters to John Ashcroft telling the Bush administration, no, you're wrong. Uh, This was the work of Saddam Hussein. You know, the FBI is wrong saying it came from a U.S. bioweapons lab. Here's why. So for some reason, this freshman Senator Mike Pence um, was aggressively pushing this false narrative up until Colin Powell did his U.N. speech. Um, And oddly, he also was a survivor of the anthrax attacks themselves, or he claims that he was, um, and did a press conference saying that his, his office was contaminated with anthrax um, and, you know, uh, went to the hospital with his family uh, following the press conference to get Cipro injections and had the press film him at the hospital getting this done. Um, really? now, Mike Pence? Yeah. I never knew this. Mike Pence, yeah. And he thanked God uh, for surviving the anthrax attacks in a press conference. Now, there is some uh, odd irregularities with how he got infected. It was in an office that was very far away from where the other politicians received letters. And it was in an an office that he had hardly used. Um, So one 
you know, one reporter, just a generic you know, reporter who was talking about Mike Pence, used the word peculiar to describe how his office was infected. Now, I'm, that to me, that raised, there's several red flags raised there, but I can't say for sure that, you know, what his exact role was. But I think it's pretty likely Mike Pence was aligning himself with a sort of secret neoconservative power structure in D.C. that transcended just the Bush administration. Um, back at that time. Yeah, you, um, you mentioned Cipro, Robbie. Sorry to interrupt you. I, this is a question I wanted to ask. You mentioned Cipro. This is a question I wanted to ask you because um, this is one of the things that really got me interested in this whole anthrax deal. Um, government officials have actually, at least one of them, ha- have gone on the record to say that they started taking Cipro um, days before the anthrax was even sent in the mail or publicly announced. And this is this is a pretty serious, like, uh, drug to be taking. This is not something that's like a vitamin you take with your daily regimen. I mean, this is like, this is a serious drug that you take almost retroactively or if you know you're going to be coming in contact with dangerous um, infectious diseases, right? That's correct, yeah. It's it is a, it's not too commonly prescribed as an antibiotic for other things. Sometimes it's it's commonly used for like urinary tract infection. So there's some traditional uses for it but there's no explanation, and nobody has ever pressed the Bush administration on why they received Cipro injections on the evening of 9/11, um, on advice from one of their um, one of their someone on their staff. Wasn't Jerome Howard connected to Cipro? Um, you know, I'm not sure. The name is familiar, but I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. I, mean, I think a- maybe he was the person who gave the yeah advi- who gave the advice advising to get on Cipro. To- yeah, so. That's never really been explained why the Bush administration thought that they needed to do that. Let's just yeah, let's add Cipro. Yeah, let's add Cipro to our daily regimen. I I wanted to ask Andy Card about that, man. You won't believe this, Robbie. We had Andy Card over last year right here at the studio for three hours and um, uh, did a lot of stuff on the record, but a lot of stuff off the record. And one of the questions I wanted to ask him was about Cipro, and I didn't. We asked him about Saudi Arabia. We asked him about the Carlisle Group. We asked him about the Iraq Study Group. I didn't get to ask him about Cipro, but man, th- th- somebody knows something about the Cipro. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a given that if Bush's ch- staff and Cheney's staff were on Cipro and given injections, you can go all the way down the chain. I mean, people like David Frum, Bush's speechwriter, who's now this, you know, loved um, columnist for the Atlantic among Democrats, um, people like him were most definitely on Cipro. And there's a there's a dirty secret in in the you know that emanates from the Bush administration that none of these people have ever been asked about, or have were ever respond to. I mean, I've actually tried to get several of them to uh, explain to me, you know, why they decided to take Cipro for how long they were on it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Hmm. Um, uh, let's, what was his name? I think Larry. I don't remember the guy's name, but it was the guy who runs Judicial Watch. Actually. Um, well, Larry Clayman. Class action lawsuit. Larry Clayman, yeah. Yeah, Larry Clayman. Uh, uh, a class action lawsuit off the ground against the White House and, and the government for not warning postal workers or federal employees about the attacks and, um, and resulting in two of their deaths from handling um, infected mail in, the, in a Brentwood postal facility. Right. Um, and I don't know if anything came of that lawsuit, but unfortunately. Um, even reporters who tried to dig into it um, and were trying to poke holes in it, one of the main ones being Keith Oberman on MSNBC, um, Keith Oberman was extremely doubtful 
of the official narrative of the anthrax story and made it very clear on his show. And not long after he expressed such strong opinions against that official narrative, um, he received a white powder letter in the mail um, that turned out not to be anthrax. So it was just more of a threat letter with fake anthrax in it. Um, Keith Oberman obviously was very upset, you know, that he thought someone was trying to make a threat on his life. Oh, yeah. He, he called the FBI to his home. They told him not to talk to the press about it until the investigation was complete. And the next day, the New York Post, a, a notorious neoconservative outlet out of New York, ran a, a story mocking him, saying, Powder Poof Spooks Keith. And the story is essentially just mocking Keith Oberman for thinking that someone sent him an anthrax letter when no, nobody even did anything of the sort, that it was just a letter that had some talcum powder on the outside of it. Uh, so, um, yeah, it sounds but, like someone was trying to bully him. And, and, and basically, Robbie, maybe maybe five people in the entire country, maybe the world, could have actually weaponized this strain and, and, and spent the year or however long it took to make it and send it. And I think Pat, even Pat, Senator Patrick Leahy has been on the record as saying that he feels – uh, there were multiple parties involved, or there there was more than just what um, you know the FBI has told us uh, who was ultimately behind these attacks. Absolutely, I mean I think Patrick Leahy he's a very smart, um, he's a very wise man for you know, for standing up and saying that because um, you know I think on on, on a certain level if he didn't, um, obviously whoever sent that anthrax to him felt that he was expendable and didn't care if he died. Um, he wasn't given a Cipro warning. Tom Daschle didn't get a Cipro warning. So, you know, they very well could have died from inhalation anthrax from this, you know, or one of their staffers or something. Um, and it's true that Daschle and Leahy both have expressed uh, extreme doubts in the FBI's conclusions that it was the work of a single lone scientist named Bruce Ivins. Exactly. They called the, they described as a disgruntled super patriot. Um, so it's, I mean, yeah, you have to wonder who had access to this weaponized strain of anthrax um, and, you know, who, who sent it out? Um, were there multiple perpetrators? Who Was it someone else other than Bruce Ivins? Unfortunately, the FBI closed the investigation and uh, Obama in private threatened to veto funding towards the investigation. To, uh, reopening any new investigation on it. Mm. So, right. and there's also evidence that, um, that, you know, some of the anthrax actually came from a CIA location um, based on some uh, things that whistleblower Matt DeHart has said. And in that instance, uh, Dick Cheney actually quashed a nuclear regulatory uh, commission investigation showing radiation traces from the anthrax traveling across the country leading to somewhere else other than Fort Detrick, Maryland. Um, so there are definitely people on the inside who want to kill this story, including Obama, um, for whatever reason. And when I met, when I ran into Tom Daschle this past July down in D.C., um, I could just definitely tell by his, uh, when, when I kind of, when I told him, basically, he, he, I said, you know, thanks for standing up to the Bush administration. Um, I know there was a lot of fear going on in that time. And uh, also, you know, having the guts to ad admit and tell people that Cheney did call you personally and tell you not to investigate or to stall investigations into 9-11. And, yeah. and also, I, I, I said this to him, and I still can't believe I had the balls to say this to him. I said, 
and, and, and also, Senator, you know, I think you being sent the anthrax, we, we know it was not some random thing. And we know that there was there was a message behind you getting that anthrax. And he kind of kind of I think he kind of went a little cold when I said that to him. And he just kind of nodded at me, you know. Mm-hmm. So Tom Daschle yeah. knows there's more to it. And, you know, maybe for him to, to, to go deeper and to go further is maybe if, maybe he's his life is still in danger. Well, exactly. I mean, that's the that's the weird invisible line that, you know, someone that one could cross while living in the United States is since we don't have a barrage of, you know, like the Russian media, for example, isn't constantly putting out information saying that Bush killed Robert Stevens, you know, assassinated a journalist, right. like in, in the way that they say that, you know, Putin assassinated Anna Poliskaya, mm. um, who was critical of him in Russia, right. because we don't have that there's sort of an unknown landscape that we're navigating in this country where we don't know once we've crossed a line into, uh, you know, possibly being under threat from our government or let's even worse, you know, that our life is being threatened in some way by our government or someone who's in power in our government. And I think Tom Daschle on a certain level knows where that line is um, as someone who has experienced firsthand, you know, a threat on his life, from weaponized U.S. manufactured anthrax, yeah, and for for probably good reason. I mean, I'm sure he has a family. Mm-hmm. Um, he's decided not to cross that line. Now, you would have to find out from him why, but it's clear based on you know this conversation you're telling me about, and when I've seen him asked about it other times, that he does not want to talk about it, and he's and he gets emotional when he does, and not like emotional crying or teary-eyed but like rattled yes um, shooken up yes. uh he kind of turns you could tell that he is very bothered by it still oh absolutely um, and, and he was he was totally shocked i mean i even recognize him on the street my brother and i have a good eye for you know politicians and people like that i'm always on the lookout um and he was just you know obviously we've all kind of done the same kind of research into this stuff and we know some of the players so for me to just randomly run into him and just have the guts to ask him about it. I think definitely took him off guard. But I mean, how many other times are you going to get a chance to have a one-on-one with Tom Daschle like that? <laughs> you know, because if it's obviously if he knows it's under the pretense that you're investigating anthrax and you're looking into this stuff, he's going to definitely have more of a guard up than just running into you randomly on the street. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, there are very few people who I think will talk candidly about yeah. this right now. I mean, I'm in the process of rounding up. Um, a, a bunch of people to interview. Um, the list is already about a hundred names long. Wow! You know, and I'm just going to go down the list to to everyone I can possibly talk to. Um, because I'm, I I don't know if I mentioned earlier, I'm working on a more in depth documentary about the anthrax attacks, which will most the investigation will mostly be based on just talking to people who um, collided with this in some way, either family members of people who died. Um, those who got infected and survived. I want to talk to everybody about it. Um, Have you so, reached out to Stephen Hatfield at all? Um, I haven't reached out to him, um, but I'd definitely be interested in speaking to him as well. But based on the fact that he took us something like a $6.2 million settlement, I'd be surprised if he you know, could talk that candidly about it. I'm sure he signed some kind of NDA. Um, but yeah, no, I'm definitely interested in reaching out to him and pretty much anybody else. Um, you know, or even maybe Bush officials who know, knew about the Cipro warning. Um, you know, like uh, you were talking about Andy Card. I mean, he would be a great person to reach out to. 
It's crazy, man. He's our neighbor. He lives like a few houses down from us here yeah. in Jaffe, New Hampshire. New Hampshire. It's pretty pretty wild, man. Wow. The, the neocon next door. Yeah. When we well, what it is is he he became president of my alma mater, Franklin Pierce University, and you know, Mike and I, with our background in, in 9/11 uh, truth investigation and activism from our high school and early college years, to hear all of a sudden. The, the new president of my college where I went to was Andy Card, the guy who whispered into Bush's ear. It was, it was like kind of surreal. He chaired the Iraq study group. Right. And so we, um, you know, using my status as an alumni of Franklin Pierce, I, I leveraged that into getting a sit-down interview with, with Andy Card. And that was that was pretty interesting. And, and like Mike said, some of the things we asked him off the record, I think he was really, really shocked that these two guys up here in the middle of the woods in New Hampshire knew about it. Like relating to 9/11 and stuff, he wasn't he wasn't banking on us knowing what we knew. He did not want to talk about COG. He yeah. Did, he did not want to talk about the threats to President Bush's life uh, on the morning of 9/11 uh, with that that camera crew that showed up. This is based on uh, uh, Daniel Hopsiger's research. Uh, yeah. He did not want to talk about the Carlisle Group. He did not want to talk about Poppy uh, Bush being CIA. Poppy Bush being CIA. This is things we kind of lightly asked him about Threw very in. very lightly over the course of three hours, and he just kind of very uh, effectively stonewalled us and cut with a smile on his face. But it was very yeah. interesting sitting sitting down with him for three hours, that's for sure. Yeah, that was cool. So I guess overall, uh, Robbie, what do you hope to accomplish with, um, you know, A, these incredible documentaries you've made about uh, the PNAC and the neocons and your anthrax documentary? What's your overriding goal here moving forward? Well... Operating on the belief that Bruce Ivins didn't do the anthrax attacks, I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. Um, I believe that they came from someone within our own government who is still remains free and who might even have uh, be in a position of power. And just based on that prospect alone, I feel like it's you know every American's duty to try to expose that um, and try to actually get to the bottom of what happened because. America cannot act like this morally exceptional nation that, you know, has a free press when a journalist was targeted with U.S. manufactured weaponized anthrax and died. Um, I think that is alone, you know, really obliterates that entire narrative that we sort of have a free press operating here. Um, and just based on that alone, I think that uh, we need a new investigation of it. Um, and not only that, we need the press to reinvestigate it and, and to look into it more. Unfortunately, the press has decided not to do that. So citizen journalists need to take it upon themselves to do it. Um, we have an opportunity here to reapproach, you know, um, you know, the 9-11 Truth Movement laid a lot of amazing groundwork, uh, especially early on with uncovering a lot of details about 9-11 that were hidden from us. But at the same time, the 9-11 Truth Movement started to drift towards a lot of sort of more hysterical, sensationalist stuff um, with a lot of, you know, hyperbole and and, thing, and arguments that were not necessarily based on facts and more based on innuendo and rumor. And I think we have a real opportunity here with Anthrax to not make that same mistake and actually approach it from an investigative reporter sort of point of view. And even though I believe that you know, I strongly believe that Bruce Ivins didn't do it, and that it was probably someone else in our own government. I don't know. I can't say who. Um, I, I have my suspicions. I have my theories. But I'm going to let the investigation, you know, take me to a, a better conclusion or take me to a more clear conclusion 
And I think other people um, who are interested in this subject or who want to see it uncovered should be doing that as well. If that means talking to people, um, trying to piece together more of the chronology. I mean, there are so many facets just to the anthrax attacks that it, you know, even though only five people died, um, it's just as deep of a rabbit hole as 9-11. I mean, even just the Florida connections to the anthrax attacks alone are, are, um, are a completely uninvestigated uh, um, side of the story. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, even, even other senior biodefense researchers at the United States Army Medical Research Institute that worked with Ivan's, um, at least one of them has gone on the record and said that they don't, they, they said there's no way, there's no way that this guy could have done this undetected and put together this this anthrax and the strain that it allegedly came from. Uh, there's just no way. So there are other people out there who are credible voices that I think need to be heard. And I really hope that with your next documentary that, uh, you know, you can get some of these people on the record to speak out and, and, and talk about it and more people can become aware of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope I hope so, too. And, um, and just, you know, as a warning to your listeners, um, there are other people circling Trump who have bizarre and suspicious connections to the 2001 anthrax attacks. Um, among them, James Wolsey and, and Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani profited immensely off of the 2001 anthrax attacks with his company, Bio One, which specializes in anthrax decontamination. And they didn't reveal how much money he made in decontaminating some of these infected areas, but just as a comparison, decontaminating one Brentwood postal uh, office cost $130 million. Okay. Wow. So Rudy Giuliani actually moved his headquarters of Bio One into the building of the Florida Sun. Um, so I'm not sure why his company decided to move into that building, but let's just speculate here that if someone wanted to destroy evidence um, and wanted to manipulate an investigation, Buying the building that a that a murder took place in is one good way to do it. Jeez, yeah, I did, I did not know that. That's and shady. Another point too: this whole death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great, is very cartoonish. You know, you have to look. Oh, yeah. at, you have to look at the political implications and the ramifications um, at the time, just after nine eleven, and what, what the message they were trying to send, uh, trying to paint oh, it as as these. You know, this is coming from Arabs and you know Islamic terrorists. So it's it's almost cartoonish. In a way, looking back oh, at it 15, 15 years later, not with rose-colored uh, glasses, but you know, just seeing it for what it is. It's the most cartoonish thing in the world. I mean, it seems like it's written to me. It seems like it's written by someone who's clearly an Islamophobe, who mm-hmm. probably a Zionist, um, yeah. and they wanted to tap on and you know, sort of lean on all these different cartoonish stereotypes of what a Muslim terrorist might say in a letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it kind of actually has hints of, of neoconservatives more like people like Frank Gaffney than it does some of the neocons inside the Bush administration like Wolfowitz and, you know, um, people like John Bolton. Um, and I just wanted to bring up Woolsey really quick because uh, James Woolsey is a bizarre character in all of this where he wasn't officially part of the Bush administration but he was uh, part of a uh, an, uh, partly administration-sponsored drill called Operation Dark Winter in June of 2001, um, where he helped put on this mock bioterror drill, which 
actually created fake newscasts with actors, and you, and you can watch it this all on YouTube. It's all been uploaded online. And in this last fake newscast, as part of this bioterror drill, uh, the newscaster says that the, the biological weapon, which in this drill it was smallpox, not anthrax, but she says that this weapon, uh, smallpox, came from terrorists in, Iraq, uh, in Afghanistan supplied by the Iraqi government. Hmm. Um, and so there's some extremely bizarre parallels with this mock terror drill uh, to the actual anthrax attacks, including Judith Miller being a participant in it, where she received a, you know, a dose of smallpox in this drill, and later, um, about four months later, she received a fake anthrax letter threat to the New York Times addressed to her. Wow, yeah, man. That's, <laughs> it's like a that's drill for the beyond. real thing, man. Kind of uh, change subjects and gears a little bit here, Robbie. I'd be interested to get your take. You don't have to comment if you don't want to. Um, I've been going really deep into the Podesta leaked emails. Like, uh, Have you been looking at those at all? Um, yeah. No, I... I I was looking at them quite closely before the election, and uh, I kind of got sidetracked here. But yeah, I, I was I was kind of doing my own search strings in, yeah. into them. Um, I I didn't want to like go down the the pedophile thing, but I've really been looking at that closely, man. And I, I'm not going to lie, I'm really disturbed by what I've been been seeing. Yeah, well, my I mean, I definitely think in some of those emails, there's there could be code. Yeah, uh, being used, um, but I just personally would say that um, there is, you know, and I'm sure there's pedophile sex trafficking that's happened before um, with, you know, with people in power or or people in royalty and that kind of. Oh thing. yeah, I mean, without without a doubt, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey but Epstein. I'm, I'm hesitant to say that there's that there's any fire here um, right. because. I just find it really hard to believe that, you know, as corrupt and as obviously connected to all this power that Podesta is, that he would be even using coded language about uh, child sex trafficking in these emails. Right, would he, would he um, be that brazen to do it like that in the open, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, and I could see how people on like 4chan and on Reddit were putting together all these pieces and thinking that it showed this sort of underground pedophile network. I mean, I could, I, I, I was entertained by sort of the crowdsourced investigation yeah. of that. But I came to the other end of it thinking that it was kind of just all smoke and no fire. But that's my personal you know, sure. takeaway from it. Sure. I mean, the Elephantis guy who owns um, Comet Ping Pong, I mean, I, mean, I don't know. I, th I think it would be at least worth having him questioned or, or explaining some of the um, images that were on his Instagram um, and some of the connections of the people who liked them and commented on them uh, being part of the Department of Justice. And I don't know, there's, there's obviously always weird tie-ins with things, but I was just curious to get your thought on that. Yeah, I looked, I mean, I looked at all his Instagram stuff too. And there, I mean, there's definitely some bizarre, bizarre pictures in there for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially that one with the kids' hands taped to the table. Taped to the, but, yeah. That, that, that's <laughs> that's kind of fucked up, man. <laughs> that's that's yeah, not something I put on my Instagram. If someone was actually running, you know, sex slaves through their their pizza parlor, they wouldn't post a picture like that. So I, right. who knows? Right. Yeah. Would they you be know? that hubris to post it publicly like I, that? I agree, Robbie. Yeah. I, I think the jury is kind of out on that. I mean, we do have uh, we do have cases to draw on, like the Franklin cover up and um, other stuff that's gone on. But uh, I, 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 speaking for myself, I, I think the jury is kind of still out on that. But 
Um, hey, you know, thank you so much for joining us, Robbie, and, and all this information about anthrax. And we, we could do, literally do another whole show just talking about stuff we didn't cover tonight. But uh, yeah, and if you're uh, ever come ever out east, we'd love to uh, you know meet up and maybe do a screening of uh, one of your movies. Well, that sounds great. Yeah. yeah if I'm, uh, where are you guys located? We're in, we're in New Hampshire, but you know we can go to Boston or we can go to New York and meet up. You know, if you're you're ever in any of those areas. Cool. Well, yeah, I'll definitely uh, give you guys a call. If you come to New okay. Hampshire, we could go knock on Andy Card's door. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> how, be amazing. How would you like to have dinner with Andy Card? <laughs> Might be able to make that well, thank happen. Thank you so much for having me, guys. <laughs> yeah, this, this is this has been great. And uh, you, tell all the listeners where they can find your stuff, Robbie. Uh, well, they can if they wanted to watch American Anthrax. It's free on YouTube. Um, I made an updated version called American Anthrax 1.5. Um, that's got a little bit more information in it that I recommend people check out. And then if you want to check out a very heavy agenda, um, it's, uh, it's available on DVD and you can watch it, um, for a small fee on Vimeo on demand. And, uh, you can find all that information at, um, a very heavy agenda.com. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Robbie. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to speak to us, and uh, we hope that everybody listening, you know, does kind of look into it and give it a second thought and goes and checks it out. So uh, this has been another episode of Jacqueline Radio, and uh, have a great night, Robbie. Thank you very Keep much. Keep up the good work. Thank you. You too, guys. Okay. Have Take care. Yep. All right. Cheers. All right. Well, thank you for listening. This is uh, episode 40, certainly an awesome conversation, and a lot to digest and think and talk about. But, uh, you know, the bottom line here is, uh, folks, as Alex Jones would say, folks, Google it. Do your own research. <laughs> Don't take the Jackman Brothers' words for this. Uh, you know, this stuff is out there, folks. The truth is out there. Mulder said it in X-Files, folks. There's a lot of strands, no pun intended. There, there really There's is. There's a lot of roads you can go down, and you can beat your head against the wall going crazy thinking about this shit. Um, you but know, you're better off knowing about it. You should know. You should know, have an idea what's should going know. on. We should know about it. It's our yeah. country. You know. You should know about it. Uh, you know. Take a couple seconds away from the ball game or uh, you know the latest episode of Walking Dead to look yeah. at it. Well, cool. Well, great interview, Mike. Thanks for setting that hey, up, and thank hey, you, man. Robbie Martin, for joining us. A lot of fun, and thank you to our our, our lovely producer for. Uh, for helping us out with uh, the sound equipment. And yeah, and Driss with the phone, sponsored by Driss. Driss. Yeah, yeah, Brock Adris uh, hooking us up with the phone. Absolutely. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Have a good night. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows Got this broken feeling Like their father or their dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates And a long stem rose
Everybody 